If you would like to borrow a Bible, raise your hand. We'll have the ushers bring you a Bible if you want to follow along with us this morning. And when you get that Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to the book of Matthew. We finished Malachi a few weeks ago, and it's natural, right, to move right from Malachi to Matthew. It makes it look like we're preaching through the books of the Bible, one after the other, doesn't it? Even though we're not. But we are going through the book of Matthew, and we started that last week. <clears throat> for those of you who are here for Thanksgiving, we were doing the genealogy. We talked about God marching through the generations, this hand moving all the way up to now. We're going to talk about the conception of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. So let's all stand as we read that. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. Some special people are here this morning in my family's life. First, I'll have my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law, if you guys want to raise your hand. Yeah, raise your hand, maybe. Uh, Jamie and Ricky Mathine with uh, niece and nephew Rayleigh and Ryder. Great to see you guys here. And I also have this morning uh, my best man from my wedding and his wife, Mike and Jessica. What all, if you guys want to raise your hand? Don't be embarrassed. Raise your hand. Now, if he's my best man at my wedding, well, actually, my grandmother is my best man, but that's another story altogether. Uh, but he was the best man that was a male up there next to me. And he and I have been through a whole lot together. I'm sure he could tell you that. We have spent countless hours together in prayer, uh, hours together in, in talking to others about Christ. We uh, used to preach, and he led worship, then preached, and did a lot of ministry together at a nursing home. We actually helped lead a college ministry together back in the day, and, and we've been through a lot together. Now, though we've done a lot together, and we've participated a lot together, there's something that really stands out that's different between the two of us. I mean, right now, we kind of look alike. He used to have really long hair, and I didn't. But besides that, there's something that really stands out. 
When I am with Mike, which I'm going to be hanging out with him today, I notice one of my greatest flaws. Isn't that awesome? I notice one of my greatest issues when I'm with him. Mike is never in a hurry. And if you know me, I am always in a hurry. I'm always rushing about. So Mike and I, we would get together at 5 in the morning. I'm not joking. 5 in the morning to pray, or we'd be praying past midnight together. And I would pray for the allotted time. And Mike was just getting started. He was in no rush. We would go out and talk to others about Jesus, and I would share the gospel and be ready to move on. And he's ready for this really long engagement of hours. Uh, when we go and, and eat together, I eat, and then I move on. And <laughs> He's settling in for this long social engagement. And, and most of the times of us hanging out together, it's, it's me rushing around saying, dude, come on, let's go, let's go. And I'm kind of just dragging him. And, and, it's, and it really stands out that one of my tendencies, it's not, always, it's not a very good tendency, but one of my tendencies is a tendency toward self-striving. I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting things done, right? But you know, and I know, that it crosses the line when it turns into self-striving. Yeah? I mean, there's nothing wrong with discipline. There's nothing wrong with taking care of business. And, but you and I know, you know when your hard work and discipline, you know, crosses the line into striving. Yeah? You know? When you're not really engaged with people, you're not really there with them. You're just there to accomplish a task, accomplish a goal. You're ready to move on to the next thing, and that person's just kind of in the way, okay, I'll engage with you while I have to, but I have, I have stuff to accomplish here. And when I'm hanging out with Mike, it really stands out because he's not in a hurry. And, and you know what, one of the reasons why he's not in a hurry, and this is what I've really respected about him over the years, he has a deep-seated belief, and it just oozes out of him. And the sovereignty of God. And when we strive, when I strive in my own strength, basically, we strive because we're distrusting God's sovereignty. It's, it's as if the challenges and problems of life will not ever be figured out unless I keep moving from task to task to task, Right? I've got to accomplish stuff. I've got to do stuff. I, you know, I've been brought to this point in my life. I've got to just keep moving and keep doing things. And it's as if God is, is not even in the picture because I leave him out because I'm crunched in life. Have you ever said that? I just feel so crunched. I have no time. I've got so much to do. I'm crunched. And God, who knows where he's at, so you just got to kind of pull it off on your own. But the reality is, God is sovereign, God is in control, and he has a plan for your life, and his plan is progressing, and it's going to continue to progress with where he wants you without your striving. And when we get this, it should lead to rest, rest in his sovereign control and a ceasing from striving. And this morning's passage, I, I know it is so familiar to you, but it is perfect. Because this passage, if you've ever thought about this before, I'm telling you, 
is, is all about God's sovereignty and in control. He's been in control from the beginning of the world. He's been working out his plan through time, and he's really been working out his plan. You can see it here in the, in the events surrounding the birth of his Messiah, Jesus. And if you missed it with us last week, we, went, we marched through this wonderful genealogy, and you think, well, why is it even there? Well, the genealogy is there, and part of the reason why it is there is that it is showing you that God is control of each and every descendant. Nothing is going to mess up his plan from all these messed up sinners. He's just marching through the genealogy to show God's sovereignty and control of each descendant and each generation leading up to Jesus And as we move through the story of Jesus and his birth, what the author, Matthew, is trying to show you is that God is in control of all the events. When it looks like people are going to mess up his plan, when it looks like that, oh, Joseph's going to mess up the plan, or Herod's going to mess up the plan, or or somebody's going to mess up God's sovereign, ordained plan to bring salvation to his people, it's not going to happen. And as I was thinking through this very familiar passage and I was studying it, and I was reading some, some brothers in the Lord who have studied it before, I, I saw afresh God's fingerprints, his sovereign control of all this. And I thought, wow, this probably has something to do with us and his control over our lives. And I found this quote. I'm only going to give you one quote today. It comes from this professor. Many of you may have had this professor, Grant Osborne. This is what he says in connecting it to our lives. Let me put this up for you. Says, he says, the same God who has guided the process of the coming of the Messiah guides the progress of our lives. And that's what I really want you to believe before it's all over with. The same God who was in control of all these events leading up to Jesus, even the, the, the progress of what's going on in Jesus and the process of each bit to bring about salvation for us, That same God that we believe in is in control of the progress and process of our lives. And so this morning, we're going to do something different. I know you've you've maybe not familiar with this, but we're actually going to watch God work. Maybe you've grown up in churches, and I'm not dogging anybody. Probably I should be dogging myself. But I'm not going to highlight the characters. I'm not going to say, wasn't Mary awesome? Wasn't Joseph great? I'm going to say, let's not not look necessarily what they're doing, but let's look at God. He's great. Look what he's doing. Look what he did. Look what he is doing in your life. Let's have the focus on, on, on God. All right? Let's, let, let's push into his character of sovereignty as we go through this passage. So let's jump in, verse 18, and start marching through. Let's go. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. So Mary and Joseph, the betrothed, which is, which is more than our engagement. If, if somebody died, one of, the, one of the two died during the betrothal, the other was considered a widow. And the only way to break off this betrothal is through Divorce. And I'm trying to explain this to you. It's, it's like marriage. I know there's kids in here. It's like marriage without the benefits. You know what I'm saying? All right? Yeah. You, you're not living in the same spot. 
don't, don't try to use this passage to say, ah, see, I can live with my boyfriend until we get married. No. Does not explain that, all right? She's, they're not living together. She's still at her parents' house during this patrol period, even though it's a very serious relationship. And after about a year, they would get married. And Mary, the, the girl here, was probably around the typical age, no joke. She's probably 12 or 13. Isn't that amazing? And Joseph was probably the typical age of 18. He's starting to make some money so he can provide for his family. So during this time of, of saving themselves for marriage, Mary was found to be pregnant. Uh, amazing. And, and, there was, and there was no other man involved in this pregnancy as this conception was supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a big deal because this resolves an earlier issue that came up when we were going through the genealogy. You see the genealogy, especially look at verses 12 through 16 in, in chapter 1, which lists all these generations of, of fathers of, of children. You see, look at it. Look at verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, and Shatil the father of Zerubbabel. And so we have this fatherhood pattern going on. But look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus. No, it doesn't say that. No, no. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So the question is, why is Joseph not called the father of Jesus? You may wonder that when you're going through the genealogy. And, and the answer is, is that the baby inside of Mary is not from Joseph. but from the Holy Spirit. So the origin of Jesus is not from man, but it is divine. And it's very surprising that that would, that would come up because as you're marching through this this genealogy, you have this human-generated genealogy. And after going through it, you're like, bam! Jesus is separate, conceived of the Holy Spirit. So what, what does that make Jesus? Does that make him like half God and then half human? Like you look at him, you're like, okay, let's just divide you right down the middle. And, and this part of you will be your human half. And, and this part will be your divine half. And you can just, just use this hand for human and this hand for me. How, what do you, how do you view Christ? And that's not a proper way to view him. A proper way to view who Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit is he is the one and only unique God-man. He's not divided down the middle. But he's the unique God-man who's been brought about by this supernatural conception, amazing, that resolves that issue. So let's keep moving on. Look at verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. That, that, that totally messes up everything, right? That just messes everything up. This Messiah had to be born through prophecies had to be born through the royal line of David. And, and just as a side note here, the only way he's going to get this royal line of David was going to come through Joseph's side of the family. And, and the question we need to keep asking as we march through is, if Joseph is not the father of Jesus, then how is he going to have the title son of David? How's that going to happen? We'll, we'll, we'll get to that at the end. 
But right now, we are seeing that the only way for him to have that title under the line of Joseph, the son of David, is going to be if Joseph marries Mary. But he's like, I don't want to do it. And he's just doing what's right. During that time, if you're betrothed to a woman and she's found to be pregnant, you're like, you've been in with another man. You've committed adultery. And what you're supposed to do is that you're supposed to call it off. You're supposed to divorce that person. That was the expected thing for Joseph to do. If he ended up marrying Mary, he would look like he was an impure man. His honor would be slammed. So he's doing the right thing. He is proceeding with a divorce. But he's not going to publicly shame her, go before a large crowd to do this. He's going to do it quietly before maybe a couple of witnesses because he's a, he, though he is a righteous man, he's also a very compassionate man. So let's be really clear. Joseph is doing the right thing, but he is about to blow the plan of God that has been established since the foundation of the world. He's going to mess it all up. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That God has ordained a plan for our salvation, and this one guy, teenager named Joseph, is just about to blow it all? You believe that? No. You don't believe that, right? Because you believe, you know, you know God, he's in control of his plan. He's going to keep marching it forward, and he's going to ordain events that's going to spill out, and it's going to work out perfectly to bring about our salvation. You believe that, right? That God's in sovereign control. And yet, when it comes to your life, you don't believe it, right? God has ordained all these great things for your salvation. He's working it all out and all the details. It's progressing. But when it comes to you, you're like, he's not doing the same. Maybe you believe that somehow his plan has been disrupted along the way, yeah? During my 20s, as I hung out with Mike a lot, one of the things he was a big encouragement, and he prayed for me a lot, was, um, was when I was taking care of my grandmother. He actually helped me take care of her in some times of visiting her and hanging out with her and going through a lot of her junk when we did these massive garage sales together. It was a lot of fun, wasn't it, Mike? Yeah. We did a lot of cool stuff like that together, guys in their 20s doing garage sales. But as we would hang out, he would encourage me uh, as I took care of my grandmother. And I, I had an issue during that time. I just, I really believe that... My, 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 my life then was disrupted. I just feel like it was disrupted. I, I, I didn't plan. How many guys in their 20s plan to take care of their grandmother? Just, you don't, just don't make that plan. I, I, I was going to seminary, and I had, I had stuff to do. And I remember one specific time where she got really sick, and she went to the emergency room, and she was in there for a long time. And I had to go. I mean, I was the only one taking care of her. I had to go to the hospital. Uh, but I also had to do seminary work. So I was like, well, you know, this is, can't possibly be God's plan for me, so I'm going to multitask here. So I go into the emergency room. She's there in the bed, sick, not feeling good. I should be hanging with her. I should be fully engaging with her, but, I, but I'm not. I have this huge three-ring binder, blue, I remember it, blue notebook, filled with systematic theology notes, and I'm just standing, I'm standing next to her bed because I want to kind of be with her, but I don't really want to be with her. You know what I mean? So I prop this big old binder on top of her rail, and I'm reading and talking to her, reading, multitasking, big time. You know what that's called? That's striving, striving, because 
she could not be possibly be part of God's plan for me. So I've got to keep up pushing ahead, pushing forward, keep pushing past this because I have things to accomplish, and this is a disruption. And what I can see, you know, 10 years later is that God ordained that for me. It wasn't a disruption. It was part of his sovereign plan. And, and that's the same for you when you're facing challenges. You're facing things you didn't think that you would have planned for yourself that have come your way. They all fall under God's perfect schedule of his sovereign will for your life. And he is moving it through for his glory and for your good. And right now may be hard. And right now may be challenging. And somebody may have done something to you that has been very hurtful very violent, very something that is just taking you off course. I just want you to know that God is in control. He's working for your good, for his glory. I can't explain it all, can't understand it all, but his plan for your life is still progressing. He's still with you. He's not abandoned you. He is sovereign in control. It's real. He still cares. And we see it here. Let's keep looking at this. We see it here. Let's look at his sovereignty. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph, he's in the process of figuring out how he's going to go about this divorce of Mary. God's not going to allow that. Here we go. He's not, his plan will not be thwarted. So he intervenes. He brings this angel in a dream. And he specifically calls Joseph. You see it there? He calls him son of David. Keep that in mind. A royal line. We're going to have a king here. What kind of king is this going to be? What kind of king Jesus is going to be? How is he going to come under the son of David? It's going to play out. So he's told, Joseph's told, don't be afraid to marry Mary because the child within her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Then he's told to name the child Jesus, which is just a common name at the time. It's uh, the Greek name of the Hebrew, Joshua. And the name means Yahweh saves. Maybe a lot of people named their kid Jesus back then because they're wanting God to come and save them from their oppression of the Romans. But how appropriate that he's named Yahweh saves because he is God who saves. And the angel says, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the best part. He's going to save his people from their sins. He's going to do it. It's his plan. If you ever want to wonder, what's the mission of Jesus? It's to save his people from their sins. He, he will accomplish that task. Do you know that every single person in here has, rail, has rebelled against a holy God? And when we die and face him... We will be cast out of his presence without being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel. So Jesus came, lived a perfect life, perfect death upon the cross, bearing God's punishment for our sin. And the good news is all those in here who repent and believe in the good news of Jesus, who repent and put their faith in Christ, can have God's wrath turned away, can be accepted by the Father forever. And you say, well, how, how do we know this is going to happen? Because it says that he will 
he will save his people from their sins. It's not like he might. It's not like, well, I hope he can pull it off. It says he will save his people from their sins. And who are his people? It's not just the Jews. I mean, we we have some non-Jews in the genealogy. His people are God's elect and chosen people around the world, Jews and Gentiles, that he has called out. And those that he has died for, he will save them from their sins. He will pull it off for sure. So if you've repented and put your faith in Christ, Jesus will save you from your sin. You know it through the resurrection. It worked. The conquering of death, conquering of Satan, it, it worked. Conquering of sin, it worked for his people. And when you go out and tell others about Jesus Christ, I know probably one of the hardest things to do as a Christian is to evangelize, is to tell others about Jesus Christ because you may feel like, I've got to somehow convert them. You can't convert anybody. I mean, you can be reasonable, you can be gracious, you can share the gospel, but when you go out and tell others about Jesus, you need to know this for sure. Jesus will save his people from their sin. You don't know who they are. You don't want to walk up to people and say, look, you know, are you, are you, is Jesus going to save you? I mean, you tell everybody. The gospel goes out to everybody. But you can know through Christ's death and resurrection, he will save those who are his. For sure, it's going to happen. Those who Christ died, he will save. He's going to save his people from their sins. His plan will not be stopped. Moving in to verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Really try to embrace this. This is sovereign language. This is all this took place to fulfill. It's not that the events just happened were accidental and or coincidental, but God controlled every point to bring about his Messiah. He's got this plan unfolding from the beginning of time. All the events connect, and this verse kind of shows a connection. The events that happened in the past are connected with the events that are happening in this text. And the quote comes from Isaiah. Look at verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right, let's do some hard work here, okay? This is going to be hard, so let's think together about this. I don't just want to fly past this because maybe one day you may decide to actually look at Isaiah 7 and wonder how in the world did Matthew end up with that verse here. So let's do some hard work just just briefly, okay? Let's do some hard work. The context of Isaiah 7 is that this prophecy was given to King Ahaz. He was king of Judah during the time. And Judah was under the attack from two invading kings. And Ahaz, he feared that his days were numbered. And so God, what he chose to do is to use Isaiah to prophesy to this king that this would not happen because a son of David would always reign on the throne of Judah forever. And so the sign, God wanted to give Ahaz a sign. So he told Ahaz that these kings are not going to win 
and that a virgin would give birth to a son, and she's going to name him Emmanuel, and that would show the king to mean that God was with them. And the virgin in the context of Isaiah 7 was a woman who was married and naturally gave birth to a son. So it's not a supernatural conception in Isaiah 7. So Ahaz, when he was living his life, maybe someone in his household, someone in the palace, maybe someone he knew, got married, got pregnant, and had a baby, and named the baby Emmanuel. And when Ahaz saw that, he was to know, aha, that's the sign that the king's demise who are attacking me is soon to come. And so we have this fulfillment of this prophecy that Isaiah gives to Ahaz in the time of Ahaz. That's the initial fulfillment. But God, don't disconnect the old with the new. God is working out his plan. It's progressing. And so God, in his sovereign plan, had this prophecy also placed there that was going to push forward, and this prophecy was going to find complete fulfillment in the conception of Jesus. And the virgin of that time was Mary. And the supernatural conception was by the Holy Spirit. And when the sign came of the virgin being conceived, of having conception of the, by the Holy Spirit, it wasn't a sign of military victory like during the time of Ahaz, but it was a sign of victory over sin as this Messiah would save his people from their sins. And the name is Emmanuel. You're like, well, does Jesus have two names? Well, his name, he was called was Jesus, but his symbolic name here is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's very appropriate as God was with us in the flesh. If you study the Old Testament, you think about the temple, you think about the tabernacle, you think about the, the glory of God residing in, the, in, in Israel's history. Now the glory of God is walking the earth. And you think, well, he's gone now. He's, he's been crucified, resurrected, and he's ascended. But he also left these last words. You know, the very last words in the book of Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is truly God with us. God is progressing his plan. It plays out a little bit in Isaiah. It keeps moving through history to the complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ. These are hard. These are hard texts to, to grasp and understand from the original context. And when you jump in, you see Matthew is quoting the Old Testament. It, it's a challenge. But we need to think through these things because God is putting the pieces together for his glory. Now look at the, the last two verses, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Once again, the focus of the passage is on the work of God and not on the work of man. But part of God's plan included two teenagers, Mary and Joseph. And I guarantee you this was not their plan. I'm sure they had other expectations. But while they were together... They submitted to this plan of the sovereign God, and they got married, as it tells us. But they weren't intimate until after the child was born. Now, get this. 
not only was Joseph a righteous man in the way he pursued marriage, in the way he, I guess, he stayed pure within marriage during that time, but he ended up, make sure sure you understand this, Joseph ended up adopting Mary's son. In some sense, we can say Jesus was adopted. I, I didn't make that up. I didn't come to this text thinking about the adoption of Jesus. It seemed like I was going after scholar, after scholar, after scholar, after scholar. When one said it, I ignored it. When two said it, I paid attention. When three said it, I really paid attention. Scholar, after scholar, after scholar is trying to tell me that Jesus was adopted. How did he get into the royal line of David? How did that happen? Well... Specifically here, when it says, and he called his name Jesus, it is the responsibility of the father during that time to name the child. And once the father names the child, obviously the child's his, but the act, what the scholars are telling me, the act of naming the child by Joseph is Joseph saying, yes, I submit to God's sovereign plan. I have married Mary, and now here I am. I'm going to name this child Jesus. Jesus. How does Jesus get under the royal line? Through adoption. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. Joseph's actions and Mary's actions indicate full submission to the sovereign plan of God. God has been working perfectly through history, working perfectly through the genealogy leading up to the sending of Jesus. And he's sovereign in control and working everything out and all the details. Nothing and no one will thwart his plan. And one day he came and invaded your life. I did not plan to be a Christ follower. I did not plan to be a Christian. No way. I was so rebellious against the Lord. I didn't decide one day. He's like, you know what? I want to stop living this way, and I guess I'll follow Jesus. God and his sovereign plan just cut me, cut me, and brought me to himself. And many of you can tell the same story of God invading your life and his sovereignty and drawing you to repentance and faith in him. And when that happens, we are so overjoyed with you and you overjoyed yourself. But I want to tell you something. As much as we felt God's control during that time, we can kind of feel like he's absent now. But he's the same God. And the things I know may not be turning out. I I talked to some of you recently, and I know things are not turning out the way you planned. And I know it's hard to hear this, but it's true. God is in control. I, I can't explain everything. I know some bad things have happened to you. God has not abandoned you. His plan has not been stopped. He still has his progress and process to to move you through this close to his heart. I know some hard things have happened, but God has not stopped working in and through you for his good and and for your glory. And all I got to say is that where you're at, I I think the gospel of Jesus is is calling you just to abandon yourself to him to not try to own all your problems and challenges and figuring out them on your own and try to push through on your own. But I think he's calling you just for a, an abandonment that ceases from the striving 
and rest in Him. Some of the most comforting times in my life come when I rest in God's control. I don't have to figure it out. If you're here this morning trying to figure it out, you don't have to figure it out. He's not telling you you have to know everything. He knows everything. You can really cease from striving. You can work hard, you can be disciplined, but you can cease from striving. In about nine days, as many of you know, my wife and I are leaving for Ethiopia. In Africa, we're going to finalize the adoption of this little girl in court. We're not going to be able to bring her home this time. I, I wish we could, but we're not going to be able to do that. We have to go back about four to six weeks later and, and pick her up. Now, as I was planning this trip, we're leaving, like I said, in about nine days, I was thinking, ha, 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 this would be a good trip where I can get a lot of EBF work done. <laughs> I was thinking, man, I can just, I can read this, I can write this, I can think about things deeper, and I, and I had to catch myself. Say, what are you thinking? God has ordained a time for me to be fully there with this little girl I'm trying to adopt as my daughter. While we're there, we're going to visit different orphanages and pass out donations and engage and play with the kids, and I'm thinking about all the work I can get done. It's not an interruption. It's God's plan for me. So many times we got to quit seeing things as interruptions to what we need to accomplish and rest. He's in control. He's ordained these things. He, he knows us. He knows what we've got to do. He knows. We can cease from our striving and rest in the sovereign control of God. He's worked out our salvation. He'll work out our lives. I really want us to meditate on our salvation that we have in Jesus. And I think the most proper way to meditate on the salvation that Jesus saved us from our sins this is going to be awesome, is to take the Lord's Supper together. I think it is a perfect time as we, as we begin, the, I guess, the Christmas season, is to think about what truly means that Christ will save his people from their sins. And as you come up and take the bread this morning, Remember that his body was crucified on the cross, bearing the punishment for sins. Don't forget that. And when you dip the bread into the juice, remember that his blood was spilled to turn away the wrath of God and bring forgiveness. I love making connections in Matthew. This verse here that we just saw says Jesus will save his people from their sins. But later in the book of Matthew, Jesus is interacting with his disciples and he explains this meal we're about to have. Let me put it up for you. It's in Matthew 26, 26 through 28. This is, this is really cool. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given things, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant 
which is poured out for many, pay attention, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you at my Father's kingdom. That's awesome. And I want you to know, when we take this meal, I'm just going to graciously say, this meal is for believers only. If you're a believer, you can take this meal. And if, if you are, are not a believer, we would ask you to refrain. But I want you to be astounded that something culturally strange is going on here. It, you, you just think this is just weird. We are taking bread, representing his body, and we're, and you've got this juice representing his blood. It, you, you might say, you're, it seems like you're celebrating the death of Jesus. Yes. That is culturally strange, Right? And you know what? Not only are we reflectively celebrating the death of Jesus, but we're, we're joyful about it. We're happy about it. That he made the sacrifice for our sins. And we're going to keep doing it over and over again, celebrating the Lord's Supper until he comes again. And then we'll celebrate it, this meal with him in the kingdom. We're going to keep doing it, keep proclaiming his death until he comes. So that maybe seems strange to some of you who are not believers, but it's, it's our joy. Now, another thing that may seem strange this morning and may throw some of you off is that during the time of communion, we're going to sing Christmas songs. And you're like, oh, that sounds so out of place. You know why it seems out of place? Because I think a lot of you who have grown up in the church have had a hard time connecting Christmas and Easter. Like, you have this Christmas thing go on, and the you know, baby's born, and then, whoa, what happens at Easter? Whoa, he's killed, and then he comes back alive, and we don't make a connection. But the two are meant to be connected. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. How's that going to happen? Well, through death on the cross. Burial and resurrection. And so when we're singing Christmas songs during the Lord's Supper, we're putting Christmas and the Easter weekend together because it's appropriate. They go together. And now for those of you who are new, I'm going to explain something. This is one last thing. One of the practices we have at our church when we take the Lord's Supper is called prayer and healing. Let me read to you where this comes from in in the book of James and put this up. James chapter 5, 13 through 16. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. We believe at our church that God still heals today. And the elders are available anytime to come to your home, to meet you in the hospital, anything to pray for you to be healed and anoint you with oil. But we also do it part of our service when we do um, communion. And we come together and say, come on, if you want prayer for healing in your life, we'll anoint you with oil. We'll pray in faith that God will heal you. 
We'll trust him in his sovereign plan. Just trust him. We're going to pray for your healing. Trust him with whatever he chooses to do. And so there'll be elders on the side if you want to come up for prayer. Maybe you want to come up for prayer for something else. Maybe you have issues with striving. <laughs> and you're really just caught in striving. And you don't, you don't even see a way out. You've got so much to do, you don't even see a way out. And you just want someone to pray for you. We're, we're here to pray for you. Remember that Jesus is the great God-man. Because he was human, he can sympathize with you and your weakness and whatever you're dealing with. Because he's divine, he is without sin. He's the one that can forgive our sins and he can heal us. And so we want to come to him in faith. So logistically, this is what we're going to do. Um, if you're new this morning, just kind of follow the crowd on how we go about this. I think we're going to come down this aisle over here. For those of you who are familiar, just kind of lead the way. Come down this aisle and circle out. Up top, we'll come down. Communion tables are over here. And then just go back up. But let's use this time to reflect and rejoice that Jesus has come to save us from our sins.